0: Well, hello everybody and welcome to the All Saints podcast. Something a little bit different again for you this week. I say different again, we've had a whole bunch of different things recently and um, well, I've been enjoying the interaction with different people, interviews and that kind of thing, I hope it's been helpful to you. This week I've got an email question that came in, pardon me, from a member of the congregation and I think, I was looking at this question and I thought this is such an interesting question and an important one, one that we really need to answer correctly, otherwise we... We're going to get into an awful tangle when it comes to thinking about how we want to live our lives. And I was about to type out a long and detailed email reply to this member of the congregation. And I thought, you know what, I think I might just do this differently. I'm going to uh, read the question or paraphrase it and then dig into it a little bit and answer it for you all. Because I think it's something which is worth our while thinking about. I've certainly been asked it lots of times. I remember asking it myself once. Uh, a number of decades ago, and I'll give you the circumstances in a second um, concerning when I asked it, and I think it'll be helpful for us all just to be thinking about this, and it raises a whole bunch of interesting and important issues. So anyway, the question is, I was reading 1 Corinthians 7 this morning and came across the passage where Paul is saying that it's best to remain single and serve God, verses 25 to 40, and the question basically is, well, what on earth is that about? Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase through the Uh, the question the the rest of the email Uh, when reading verse 26 I thought Paul is referring to something like the distress of persecution that they are in at the particular time and perhaps the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD so that would make sense why he encouraged singleness because at that time etc particular circumstances uh, why add more concern to your life if it can be avoided but then the the congregant said I turned to Calvin and uh, Matthew Henry both great commentators John Calvin and Matthew Henry, I use their commentaries all the time, uh, and they both say that this is advice for every age of the church, in their opinion, because it's always going to be difficult for Christians in li- this life, and they should probably remain single. Confusion set in at this point, lol. Well, I can understand that. So my question is, what go- what's going on here? This is the, the question, roughly. Um, how do we interpret this text in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul appears to discourage people from marrying? Um, do we go with Calvin and Matthew Henry and kick into the long grass the uh, emphasis that we have been uh, placing here at All Saints on the value and significance of marriage and of raising children? Uh, Do we say, no, that's something that actually it's a lot of aggravation and probably more aggravation than most of us can cope with, it's better for you to serve God by remaining single? Or do we want to disagree uh, with trepidation with John Calvin and Matthew Henry, great Uh, scholars and pastors of the past and if so why would we disagree with them on this passage well let me give you my thoughts on this the first is I'll tell you the circumstance in which I was really wrestling with this passage it was goodness I'm going to try and get the date right now it would have been early 1998 about a month or so or, or maybe just a week or two before I proposed to my now wife Nicole I went to the pastor in the church I was at at the time and said Um, uh, why is it such a good idea to get married the pastor just preached a sermon on the goodness of marriage why is it such a good idea to get married given that Paul says that he wishes wishes more people weren't and that it's a bad idea to do so Uh, and well that that conversation led to a whole bunch of different things happening one of which was me getting married or proposing uh, to Nicole my wife but you can see why I at the time and the person asking this question uh, said uh, would think of it in those terms Um, so Paul is writing uh, concerning a bunch of issues that the Corinthian church have raised and he's they've raised a whole bunch of questions in chapter 7 concerning sexual fidelity and propriety and marriage and so on Um, uh, he hints at where he's going in verse 8 to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain as I am but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion and then he goes on and picks up this in verse 25. And I'm going to read a longish section and then make some comments about it. Uh, the cut to the chase is, I do think, uh, with respect to uh, the great John Calvin and the wonderful Matthew Henry, that they have misread this passage to the extent that this... Um, I actually haven't checked the details of what they say, but it's very, very common for people to read the passage in the kind of way this, the, the questioner uh, who wrote this email uh, said they do. So I have no reason to uh, doubt that um, she, in this case, was a lady... Um, has uh, read them rightly uh, I could dig up Matthew Henry actually he's over there but I won't do this will take more time than than I have anyway so verse 25 concerning the betrothed I have no command from the Lord but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy I think that in view of the present distress it is good for the person to remain as he is are you bound to a wife don't seek to be free are you free from a wife don't seek a wife but if you do marry you've not sinned And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have, well, literally, worldly troubles is the... That's not literal, actually. That's the phrase in the ESV. Um, The the Greek phrase is um, flipsis, which means tribulation, and entesake, uh, tribulation in the flesh or something of that kind, distress in the flesh. And I want to spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on... Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the things of the world, worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, things of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him then marry. It's not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, having... A, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. All right. Um, And then the next couple of verses, um, similar vein. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as he is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So what's going on here? The things that are indisputable about it are that Paul appears, at least in the context in which he's writing to the Corinthians, to be discouraging people who are betrothed, which is something a bit like engagement, not quite the same as engagement, to be discouraging them from going through to marriage, and uh, people who are, uh, uh, right at the end, the reason I read that, um discouraging somebody whose husband has died from remarrying again he does say even in this context that uh, there are circumstances in which it would be fine and indeed perhaps good to marry that is if he thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed then that's what he's hinting at earlier in um, verse 8 and 9 even in these circumstances in which he's writing to the corinthians he's saying well If you can't control yourself, then it's better to marry than to burn with passion and certainly better to marry than to commit some kind of sexual sin because you're not married. But still, nonetheless, he says, in these circumstances in which he's writing to the Corinthians, the indisputable thing that everyone agrees with is that he's discouraging at some level marriage. And the reasons he gives, uh, at least the reasons he gives that uh, seem obvious to people, Uh, throughout the ages, are verses 32 down to about 35. I want you to be free from anxiety. I want you to not be concerned about the things of the world, how to please your spouse, but about the things of the Lord, how to please uh, him. And so you can see what's happened over the history of the church. What's tended to happen is that the indisputable fact that Paul is writing here to the Corinthians in the first century has been generalized in all kinds of different ways to become some kind of general maxim for Christians at all times and in all places. So the logic runs something like this. It's okay to get married, and if you can't control yourself sexually, if you're so attracted to somebody that, that there's a risk that you might commit some kind of sexual immorality with them, then it's better for you to get married. But it would be better still... Even better still, if you were not married, remain single for the Lord. Remain single for the gospel. Remain single so you can devote yourself in an undivided way to him and not be so worried about how to look after your wife or how to look after your husband and so on and so forth, how to meet their needs and their concerns. If you can have undivided devotion to the Lord, that's better. Now, that is a mistaken reading of the text for for, for reasons that the lady who wrote this question in is hinting at already. But I do want to say it is a very widely held reading of the text. In a whole variety of different traditions, I'll just give you a couple of examples. In some Roman Catholic traditions, the vocation of singleness is very highly prized, especially in monastic and priestly traditions, where some such vocations are actually restricted to people who are single. You're not allowed to be married in those circumstances. And so there's a kind of hierarchy of... um, not, I wouldn't say spiritual worth, but the sense in which you're able to fulfill your vocation, it's its the—it's just the case that you're unable to do certain vocations at all if you're married in those traditions. And even in some evangelical traditions, um, in some uh, churches both uh, here in the States and elsewhere in the Western world, the vocation of singleness is prized because it is said that this text, teaches that somebody who is single is able to devote themselves in a more undivided way to the Lord and so I can tell you honestly when I was a student at university I had contemporaries who were encouraged by in some cases pastors to remain single so that they could devote themselves exclusively to uh, let's say, ministry among university students or to become a school teacher at a, a all-male boarding school and devote themselves to uh, ministering the gospel, uh, t- teaching about Christ to the students there and so on and so forth. Now, what do we make of this? Uh, the, the difficult thing with it is, of course, it is wonderfully true that people who are single do have all kinds of opportunities to serve Christ in ways that married people don't. (laughs) The simple fact is um, a single person does have fewer calls upon their time from their immediate family, most likely, because they don't have, let's say, a husband or a wife and children. So they may be able to devote themselves more to the service of others in the church or to the service of the poor or to ministry in the church or whatever it would be and nothing that I want to say should be taken to denigrate that the question is not is it true that single people may have wonderful opportunities to serve Christ in part because of their singleness and because of the time that grants them absolutely that's the case and I want to encourage people who are single, and you don't know whether you'll get married in the future of course, you, you may or you may not, but I want to encourage people absolutely if you are single, whatever age you are, to thank God for the opportunities that affords. Now perhaps you'd really like to be married and that'd be wonderful too. Let me tell you that one of the very best things you can do to uh, make your marriage prospect, if I might use a a shorthand term like that, greater, is to be such a faithful and godly and diligent, devoted servant of Christ and the church, that frankly, when the right guy or the right lady comes along, they're just, wow, blown away by this amazing woman or this amazing man that they're seeing serving Christ so diligently and, and thoughtfully. Nothing that I say should be taken as a any kind of criticism or sense of denigrating that calling for the single people of the church at all saints. I know a number of uh, single people we all do who do wholeheartedly serve Christ in all kinds of wonderful ways, including in some ways that married people can't because of the demands that aren't being placed on their time. So that is a, a general obvious principle that can be, if you like uh, reflected on and, and um, what would we say? It's it's a, it's a helpful, Pointer for people who are single in any age to, to think about their, their calling at that particular stage of their life before they're married or if they're never going to be married throughout their lives. It's necessary to say all that because I don't want anything I'm about to say to be heard as a, any kind of denigration of the life of singleness for those who um, are not married. But, and you could probably smell the but coming, um, the, the simple fact is the text as a whole, as Paul uh, writes here, does not contain the universal generalizable principles from beginning to end that I'm afraid uh, uh, Dr. Calvin and uh, Pastor Henry thought it did. Though it's true that being single does provide opportunities for service, and though it's true that the Corinthians were in a situation where Paul's advice was absolutely right, and they, they, they should listen to him, and others in analogous situations should listen to him. It's not the case that the circumstances that Paul is referring to here prevail everywhere. And I want to point to the specific indicators of that just to help you to see what's going on. Then I want to go to one or two other biblical texts just to uh, give you a sense of, of how this fits into the, the big picture of uh, the New Testament history in which it's written. Um, The first clue, and again, the lady who wrote this, verse 26, she spotted this. When Paul says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. He is clearly referring to some kind of present distress that makes it good for a person to remain as he is. He's not generalizing these circumstances to every situation. He's saying that given what's true about The present circumstance. There is something going on in first century Corinth and perhaps throughout the ancient world that makes it good for a person to remain as he is. Similarly, verse 29, there's a hint. What I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. And then it's hard to imagine uh, him being more explicit than this. At the end of verse 31, he says, the present form of this world is passing away. So what are we to make of this? Um, The present distress, the time has grown very short, something's going to happen soon, and the present form of this world is passing away. What is it in the New Testament period that could possibly fit the description of something that causes distress, that is happening or going to happen soon, on account of which the present form of this world is passing away and the lady who wrote this email is exa- is exactly right this is precisely how scripture describes the coming destruction on Jerusalem of J- Jerusalem which was scheduled if you like to happen uh, prophesied to happen in just the, a few years after the writing of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the reason we know uh, that it was prophesied to happen at that time is because that's exactly what Jesus describes in in the so-called olivet discourses in mark 13 and the parallel passages Um, he said says specifically that that's what's going to happen the the discussion begins in mark 13 verse 1 as he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and jesus said to him do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down and then he goes and sat on the mount of olives opposite the temple and his disciples come to him and say so when will these things be And what would be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, when is this going to happen? And Jesus then goes on to give a sequence of signs that indicate the building of tension up to his uh, supernatural and miraculous act of judgment against the apostate and rebellious and soon-to-be-dead Old Covenant order of worship around the temple in Jerusalem and its um, surrounding precincts. Now, some of this is written in the prophetic language of visions of stars falling from heaven, which, as I mentioned at Forum at church recently, uh, is derived from Isaiah 13 and Daniel 7 and elsewhere. It's an image of rulers or kings falling from their thrones, which is a very apposite picture of what what the Lord was doing to the temple authorities in his judgment on Jerusalem. But you notice, and this is very significant, um, when... Jesus is describing what the disciples should do if they should live to see this day. He says something very interesting, Mark 13, verse 17. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation, quote, uh, remember the, the terminology in 1 Corinthians 7, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now just think about that for a second. Um, The destruction of Jerusalem was an event that was uh, horrendous in its character and uh, the effect on the local Jewish population. Many, many, many people were killed, were um, driven out of their homes, were made refugees. Um, It actually had all kinds of political knock-on events across the whole ancient greco-roman world in much the same way as contemporary conflicts and conflicts in more recent history when if a conflict breaks out in one part of the world then um, sometimes people who are from the nation that is perceived as having started the conflict but are living elsewhere may suffer all kinds of reprisals because people tend to think about identity as group identity. So Jewish people living way outside Jerusalem may have found themselves victims of all kinds of violence and brutality at the hands of the Romans or at hands of others, and especially um, Christian Jews who were shunted very heftily to the bottom of the pile of the social pecking order in first century Judaism. Jews who had embraced the Messiah... Um, wouldn't would could easily expect to have been treated extremely badly whether they lived in uh, Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or even the ends of the earth as far away as corinth and so it's entirely plausible that what Paul would say in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem well look um, remember what Jesus said it will be terrible for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days so if you're in, if you're engaged if you're betrothed Look, now is really not a great time for you to be marrying and beginning a family because you wouldn't want your wife, your new beloved wife to be pregnant, expecting your first baby when the final judgment on Jerusalem falls because Jesus said, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. So if you can't control yourself, it's better to get married than to commit some kind of sexual sin. But nonetheless, it will be better still if you were able to wait for a few years, wait for the torment and the the judgment to pass over and try and work out a way of surviving through this and rebuild your lives in the aftermath and in the rubble, so to speak, of the, the Jewish nation as a new Christian community. And in that circumstance, we can encourage you to go back to married life and to marry your betrothed and so on. Now, a couple of final thoughts about this then. The first is that Clearly, then, there is no abiding contradiction between Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 and the rest of the scripture's teaching about the goodness of marriage. Paul says nothing here that undermines the goodness of uh, the creation mandate to fill and subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and to have children. And think of the Psalms I mean, some of my favorite Psalms, are, you know, Psalms 127 and 128. Let me just remind you of the themes that are emphasized there uh, in verse In Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And what's the house he's talking about? Well, obviously he's talking about the house of the Lord, um, the house of God in Jerusalem. But then it's the household as well, as is evident from the development of the theme in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man, an echo, uh, subtle echo really, of the first psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and so on. The whole of the psalms are about the blessed man, the life of the blessed man. Um, here the word man is a, a slightly different word. It's the word that's sometimes used of a heroic man. But blessed is the heroic man who fills his quiver with them. Be a wonderful blessing to be a husband or a wife and to have children, Psalm 127. And in Psalm 128, um, the wife who uh, bears children is described as a fruitful vine within your house and your children like olive shoots around the, cha- the table. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. So those two Psalms, 127, 128, both speak of the tremendous blessing of children. And Paul says nothing to denigrate that or to denigrate marriage in general in First Corinthians 7. That's the first thing. It's worth remembering that because You do hear Pastor Neil and me and others at All Saints emphasising the value and the importance of Christian family life and the significance of it in God's plan for the future for a thousand generations of those who love him. His promise to be gracious to a thousand generations and our task is to live in such a way that we experience the grace of God and are able to pass on the fruit of what we've been blessed with to our children and our children's children, whether they're ours, or whether they're other people's children within the family of the church that we're seeking to grow together. That's the first thing. Now the second thing is Paul is speaking to a specific situation here. A specific situation brought about by persecution and horrendous circumstances that are out of the control of the Christians there who would like to get married, it appears, and experience the blessings of the creation mandate and Psalm 127, 128, and God's covenant promises, Genesis 17, and so on. But he's saying, hmm. At this time, it might not be wise to, if you're able to uh, abstain from sin whilst remaining single. Now, the question therefore arises, is it conceivable that there may be any other circumstances in the history of the world in which similar advice might helpfully be given? The answer is, of course, yes. Now, it's not the case that you'd want to say, well... Anything that makes marriage or children a little bit inconvenient falls into this category. You know, it's just a little bit expensive getting married. We're going to wait 10 years and save up some money and then get married. It's not inconvenience that Paul has in mind, and certainly not in relation to child rearing. We live in an age where it's very possible for uh, men and women who are married to uh, have a normal relationship, sexual relationship, but to abstain from having children for years or decades or forever and that's a very strange and abnormal thing and should be regarded as such in scriptural terms marriage is for child rearing that's not to say that use of contraceptives is sinful in some absolute sense but nonetheless we want to keep the the close connection between marriage and children so let's not go into make the mistake of uh, thinking, well, anything that looks like inconvenience is a warrant to either abstain from marriage or uh, abstain from having children. That's not a legitimate parallel, if you like, to First Corinthians 7. But something like a war zone or some other utter catastrophe, some calamitous social tearing of the social fabric, the like of which we've not experienced here in America for generations, would probably warrant a little bit of caution before proceeding with marriage. I, I think it's uh, it's very unlikely, actually, that uh, any of us, by God's grace, mercifully will live through circumstances that might correspond. But it's conceivable to imagine a situation in which you might say to somebody, uh, well, if you're able to uh, control yourselves, then maybe it will be better for you to get through this experience first, this externally imposed oppression first before going ahead and getting married. It's possible. To be honest I find it quite difficult to imagine those circumstances but I do want to acknowledge the possibility of them. But more to the point I think the particular circumstances that Paul does highlight here are so unique really to the first century that our default assumption ought to be back with the weight of the entire rest of Scripture's testimony about the goodness of marriage and the value of uh, child rearing and so on in God's plan for individual people and also for his church and for the whole world. So that's how I would take this text. I don't know whether that entirely answers the question of the very thoughtful lady who apparently in her personal Bible readings Uh, routinely turns to John Calvin and Matthew Henry for advice, that's a great way to approach your personal Bible reading. And let me tell you, you will grow wonderfully in your faith if that's how you approach it. I do want to uh, tentatively but fairly firmly disagree with those two mighty men of God on this point. Um, But hopefully that has clarified questions that uh, others of you may have had uh, in in relation to 1 Corinthians 7 and marriage and so on. Bottom line is I want to encourage you if you're um, considering marriage, or you're considering children, unless there's some extremely good reason not to go ahead, like you might not be old enough to get married or whatever, then I think that's a great thing to do, and to certainly to make yourself ready, do everything you can to be ready to be a great husband and a great wife and a great father and a great mother, so that if in God's providence uh, that opportunity should present itself, that is a wonderful and very important thing uh, to be doing. Whether you're married and you need to be working on being a great husband and wife now or contemplating the possibility in the future. That would be a great thing for you all to be thinking about, for all of us to be thinking about. Okay, I hope that's helpful. I think that'll do for me for now. The Lord bless you, and bye for now.